Underworld smuggling, antiviral herbs, parasitic medicinal plants, cannabis, ginseng, this episode has it all. Today's conversation is with Dr. Susan Leopold of United Plant Savers. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Wild Plant Culture Podcast, where we explore connections between people and wild plants. As always, this episode is brought to you by Wild Ridge Plants, where we grow native, edible, medicinal, ecological restoration, gardening, wildlife supporting native plant species, mail order and curbside pickup, order online at wildridgeplants.com. While I'm talking about websites, you'll want to check out unitedplantsavers.org after listening to this episode. And now, without further ado, I present to you Dr. Susan Leopold. I was uh, reading your thesis just kind of preparing for the interview oh i was wondering interesting (laughs) concept of dormant ethnobotany and that may be so old hat for you because you know 10 years ago or whatever but is that something you still think about or where has that kind of thought stream gone if anywhere since then yeah that's great thanks for taking the time to to dive into that a little bit um so the bull run mountains where I did my dissertation is just about 30 miles east of me. It's it's really where the 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 Blue Ridge meets the coastal plains. So it's it's a small mountain range, but it has an incredible amount of diversity for a really small area. And then it is that big edge effect where, you know, you have the end of the mountains and the beginning of the of the coastal plains. And um it it really was like uh a refuge, you know, going back to that theme, if you were, you know, an indentured servant kind of escaping, you know, where you were from, or, you know, if you wanted to hide and didn't want to be found, if, if you were an escaped slave, you know, those are the types of people that inhabited the Bull Run Mountains. And they did have a very deep relationship with the land. And um, when I started studying the ethnobotany and and doing my research, you know, it kind of came at this place of like we're losing the knowledge we're losing the not we're losing biodiversity we're losing you know plant knowledge all of these things which you know can be kind of a really sad and depressing place of of inquiry you know that that many people have documented and um but the thing that was really interesting when i dove into the research was that these people who were seeking refuge didn't have a connection to this place, right? They were they were coming to it, you know, um, quite new, and they developed a connection rather quickly. Yeah. So to me, studying them kind of flipped a switch into a real hopeful place that actually we have this innate connection to plants no matter what. And um, though this knowledge can be broken, it can also be uh, reconnected rather quickly, which is why where that, you know, like what kind of word or concept would frame that. And that's where the idea of dormant ethnobotany came from, because I do believe even if you study um, plant knowledge historically, it's secular, you know, whether it be from you know, different cultures that come to a land and, you know, then create their own unique relationship with it. Um, 
so you see you see knowledge recycling itself over time so that to me was kind of a a hopeful twist um on the how we perceive the relationship to plants and i i don't know it's kind of a term i coined myself and defined you know in the process of the dissertation so i i do hope that other people pick up the concept and and apply it to their own research and 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 develop the 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 idea more so i don't know when you read it was it something that you were like hmm yeah i I really like it um I like the idea that there's these places where plant knowledge still resided, even if it wasn't an active practice. You right. know, it's, it's a little bit different from that sort of salvage anthropology idea where like, you know, we're just going to try to find the last traces of the people who right. were the real people and everybody else yeah. is sort of like, you know, yeah. deracinated or whatever in some way. It's like, this is still potentially available to our culture, but it's right. just not in daily use. Right, and, right, right. Uh, it's not active. Yeah, I, I see where you're, now that you've kind of glossed it for me, I also see where you're coming from and that it's it's a more optimistic position to take relative to yeah. people's relationship to plants. And right. I appreciate yeah. it. I appreciate yeah. where that's coming from. Yeah, what are some places where you were finding botanical knowledge to be sort of dormantly residing or, you know, kind of still uh, found in in archival material or trace or, or within the culture. Uh, maybe I've phrased that poorly. I guess what I mean is what are yeah, some of the I places mean, I... you were looking for that dormant ethnobotanical knowledge or, or right. vestiges? Well, yeah, I think um gotta put my thinking cap on reflecting back yeah, on sorry, all that. I but I a long time ago. Yeah. But um I do think that um in regards to the Bull Run Mountains, what was really interesting was uh during the great depression the um there was that whole program to collect folklore so um a lot of regions around the country um people were paid to go out and collect stories so um that was that was a really fascinating um place that um you know i was i was able to kind of find those remnants of um, you know, what could be considered dormant ethnobotany. I, I do think um, uh, another, you know, good example is really the um, kind of the eclectics in, in, in American herbalism. The eclectics had, you know, an extremely um, vibrant, well-researched knowledge base in regards to um, medicinal plants of North America. And, um, and though the eclectics, um, you know, all those institutions of, of medical schools, you know, faded out with the kind of dominance of allopathic medicine, there's still this incredible um, wealth of knowledge that the eclectics left behind and all of their, um, you know, written research. So this gets to something that I feel, um, is, is really important as far as, you know, everybody's turning to the internet, right. And, and some books have been digitized and there's been some really great efforts to do that, but, um, we really need libraries and, uh, I, I think there, you know, I'm hoping that there's going to be an awareness, especially with this whole, you know, um, 
COVID thing or whatever that that people are going to realize how important libraries are the books themselves i mean i think we're seeing like the vulnerabilities of the internet and the digital world and just assuming that once something's on the internet it's there forever and it's you know all all of this is is really fragile and actually you know the the libraries where there's the actual physical books and um manuscripts um letters you know these these fragments that you know people have, have left behind are, are still really really important and should not be forgotten and overlooked and i i feel like in a way of dormancy they're they're in a renaissance of i think being rediscovered so the eclectics left us um you know an, an incredible body of knowledge um in all kinds of forms so that's that's one that's one example um and and i do think um you know any kind of historical research um you know where has all kinds of tidbits whether it be you know land records understanding um genealogy um these sort of stories i think uh thread together um a relationship with plants that you know is often overlooked or glossed over or not really acknowledged for the complexity and all the different um, uh, cultures and people that came in contact with those plants. So, um, Susan Leopold, uh, you know, uh, academic researcher, practicing herbalist, a little bit of both. Um, where are you at on that spectrum now in the past? Um, I would, I would like to, I mean, my, my main job is working as the director of United Plant Savers yes. and in, in that regard, I, I don't I don't consider myself an herbalist, though I have a lot of herbal knowledge and I apply herbal medicine to myself and within my family. Um, I don't really feel, you know, too too comfortable offering those services to other people, you know, in, in that in that capacity. Um, but uh, my work with the United Plant Savers is focusing on you know, how to improve the supply chain and to, you know, um, work with companies that are using these medicinal plants to be more responsible and, and trying to protect biodiversity um, within that capacity. So I, I, you know, I see myself more as a, maybe more of a, a plant ecologist or also, um, you know, really, I guess an ethnobotanist because I'm just, you know, trying to get at the complexity of these relationships between people and plants in the herbal industry and the supply chain. Um, and that's, that's really, that's really complicated with the, um, Susan, can I interrupt you I, for just a second with many apologies? I'm hearing yeah. like a bing, like you've got mail or something. Gonna, Is that you? Or I don't think it's, yeah, I'm going to, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to, I'm going to turn off my mail. Thanks. If you weren't so popular and weren't getting a message every two minutes, I wouldn't have said nothing, but, uh, <laughs> bing, bing. Yeah. okay. I think that should stop it. Right? Person. Well, I, I do want to get into United Plant Savers. And so we might as well get into United uh -huh. Plant Savers now, yeah. you know, I'd like, I'd love for you to, but I, yeah, so but I will say, I'll say one yeah. more thing real quick is just that, um, I really would like to get back into research and, um, I did start, I did do a fellowship at the Lloyd Library on parasitic medicinal plants. And that's really a, a passion of mine. 
Um, so I hope to, you know, publish more on that topic. So plants who ecologically operate as parasites or hemiparasites and are also medicinal? Yes. Oh, that's cool. So tell me a little bit more, like what were some of the plants you were looking at? Um... Gosh, you know, what was so fascinating was that um, I, I really got into, I was always attracted to ghost pipes or Indian yeah. pipes. So monotropa uniflora and, um, you know, they're kind of in a, in a whole class of their own. But uh, then when I was working for United Plant Savers, one of the first kind of things that I got deeply involved with, involved with was sandalwood in Hawaii and understanding, you know, that whole realm of hemiparasitic plants. So those plants that um, attach themselves to the roots of other plants, but are, but also photosynthesize. And, and then when I started understanding, um, going down the rabbit hole of, of plants that are parasitic in the ecosystem, I realized um, parasitic plants are in almost every single ecosystem on the planet. It's, it, there are so many different types of parasitic plants. So I was really kind of opened my eyes in, in that capacity. And then when I started narrowing down on those that are medicinal, I mean, there's some really interesting ones. I mean, certainly mistletoe is a huge medicinal plant family that, you know, is also parasitic and, um, you know, has so much interesting folklore and um, daughter, another really fascinating medicinal plant that's also um, a, a, some consider, you know, could be a pest. Um, so that's, uh, it's just really, um, really fascinating. Another one that um, I, I'd really love to see in person is the Maltese mushroom, as it was called. And that's in the Balanforaceae family. Um, those, those types of plants are found you know, all throughout the world, but they're most famously known for their medicinal properties because they were, um, you know, found on the island of, of Malta and the Knights of Malta traded, traded that as a valuable commodity. And so um, actually there's a whole host of uh, medicinal plants that are parasitic and they tend to have really interesting um, phytochemistry. So uh, I think it's a it's a completely untapped um, realm that provides all kinds of insight into how the ecosystem works and and also provides insight into um, you know their kind of unique medicinal properties. Do you think that there's something about their ecological role which also contributes to them having this unique phytochemistry? I do. I do. Um, and you know, that's not like my, my area of, of, of expertise per se, but you know, um, a lot, when I was at the Lloyd library, I was going back in time, looking at the research that, you know, where did these, where were these plants first talked about, you know, going back to early herbals of like the 1500s. And, you know, of course at that time there was the whole doctrines of signature, yeah. um, which was, you know, looking at how these plants, um, uh, had characteristics in their, you know, growing environment and how that would um, relate to, you know, the medicinal properties. So that's kind of fascinating to think about. Um, sandalwood has incredibly unique properties that are unlike any other plant. Um, 
and it it not only has all these spiritual and um you know folklore uses in religion but it but they also have a really unique um really unique chemistry and there are some uh trials to convert sandalwood into um uh, some pharmaceutical medicine so um anyways it's it's kind of a a, a unique um field of study that I, I found really fascinating and i would love more time to to dive into it and sandalwood is also one of the species of concern that united plant savers is working with yes um sandalwood uh in regards to hawaii um six endemic species of sandalwood it's the uh highest level of of diversity of sandalwood found anywhere else in the world i don't think many people even you know know that they think of you know the the white sandalwood from india or um and actually the the chinese refer to hawaii as the sandalwood islands um and it has like a whole history of that was you know the the plant of trade um that really kind of opened opened the hawaiian islands up and then um it was you know harvested pretty extensively in the early 1800s with the trade route um and i think the thing that is interesting about sandalwood you know um certainly it's hemiparasitic nature and how it connects itself within the ecosystem it's so critical on an island habitat but this goes back to the united states and that we have very little plant protection in place and even though um one species of sandalwood is listed on the endangered species act there's really there's no protection for plants even if it's listed on the endangered yeah. species act and um, no other place, no other place in the world where sandalwood grows is it not protected legally, other than the United States. So it's a free for all, and there's so very little left, and and the last remaining bit of it is 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 being cut, and there's um, there's very little to be done about it. So I I do think sandalwood is kind of emblematic of um kind of our plant blind society here in the united states i mean this whole thing with like going back to the whole covid thing like nobody's talking about um how we got to this place and that's through massive deforestation and an imbalance with our natural world um no no amount of money is going to solve that problem if we don't talk about it yeah united plant savers so. is this sort of interesting conservation organization in that you're promoting conscientious use yes. you're not necessarily at least for all the plants just saying hands off i mean everybody is an herbalist and has this respect for these plants and their medicinal power and it's this really interesting razor's edge to walk presumably saying oh you know we love golden seal or we love ginseng or we love sandalwood or we love osha or whatever but there's a right way and a wrong way to do this and actually and actually i don't know now i'm now my texts are coming through my phone oh, that's I'm another sorry. good sound effect 
That was like ding ding ding. I just ding. pretend exactly. there was like a giveaway on the podcast and somebody just won fifty thousand dollars <laughs> worth of I don't know OSHA tinctures or something. Ding. Um, yeah, you know the our relationship with plants and how we use them can increase biodiversity if it's done. You know, that's how we got to all these food plants that we have. Yeah. That's how we have all these different medicinal plants that grow all over the world. So um, it does it does make it really difficult because we don't align with like the native plant society or, you know, botanical gardens or all these other botanical institutions that basically are like hands off. Though, I mean, though, I mean, I'm a member of my native plant society. I've served on the board. I'm all about it, you know, but it's so fascinating how we can be plant people and be in these like boxes and not be able to communicate with each other. It's very strange. It's like, we live in this, we live on this landscape and people experience it in different ways, depending on what their plant perspective is. Like if you're a native plant person, you're not using golden seal. You're not, you're not, you know what I mean? It's just odd. And then you have people that make their whole living off of digging golden seal. So it's, it's really, it's super fascinating how we can, you know, be living on the same, in the same ecology, but have totally different relationships and see things completely different. Um, I could really so it, editorialize on that. I'm just going to keep my mouth shut because I had an experience <laughs> exactly related to that about two hours ago. Um, <laughs> but a large part of what this podcast is about is about reestablishing those cultural ties to wild plants. And I am a native yeah. plant person, but I see this as foundational to how people relate with plants. And we need people to be relating with plants more. And it can't just be uh, because you love butterflies. That's a great right. bridge for a lot of people right. and I'm not disparaging in the least, but other people have other bridges. And I think other uh, classes and ethnicities of people have different bridges and different age groups have different bridges. Like if I do a class about native edibles or whatever, I'm seeing different people there than if I do a class about butterfly host plants or something like that. And I think it's really important to open up that tent in that way. So it can be frustrating to have those walls, even within our very small group of plant interested people. Yeah. And I feel like I'm, I'm a bit, I feel like I'm, I'm kind of a cross pollinator because I'll go to an academic meeting and present at a university or I'll go to a native plant society meeting or I'll go to a foragers meeting or I'll go into an indigenous you know plant group or I'll go to an herbalist gathering and you know I I rarely see people crossing different realms like I do you know I mean there's a few out there but 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 not many and I work a lot with like nature serve and, you know, I, I work with the, with the IUCN and, you know, I try to bring them a, a bit of reality, like go on Facebook and go on a diggers page. Like this, this stuff's really happening. Yeah. You know? Um, so it's, it's fascinating, you know, in that realm and it, and it can also be really um, frustrating, but I do think, uh, you know, going back to United Plant Savers, I think that's something that makes us extremely unique. There's nobody else out there um, like us. And I, I think we, we serve a really important role. And I think we try and um, educate people as, as best we can and, and bring these stories to light. And that's, um, you know, that's, that's pretty much our main, 
our, our main mission, you know, is, is to protect these plants and maybe how we think we should protect them. Isn't how we, you know, it isn't always the case. You know what I mean? Like how we go about doing that is, is difficult. Um, so, uh, you know, in regards to like American ginseng, we wouldn't have ginseng out there if people weren't out there planting it. And there's a lot of people out there planting it and they're planting it because they want to dig it, you know? So <laughs> that's, that's far out. I mean, it's kind of like the hunting thing in, in yes. a big capacity. I mean, we have, we have lots of conservation land because we're managing hunting. Yeah. Yeah. I think the conservation through use idea is really challenging for people, but it also reflects our traditional relationship with the wild, at least in some ways, you know, it's like, yeah. um, why would you get to know a plant really well? One path towards that might be, you need that as medicine, or it's part of yeah. your trade or whatever. And it's certainly, I feel like everything is difficult at the scale that we're at in terms of the population, like it's so easy yeah. to exhaust resources, no matter how conscientious mm -hmm. you are. But yeah. United Plant Savers, I feel like you guys must deal with some things that are really fraught and dangerous because you're dealing with like underworld smuggling, a big yes. bucks trade and some things that yes. frankly, like, um, sound really intimidating to me. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> and, you know, we're a very small organization. Like I'm the director. Yeah. We have a sanctuary in Ohio. Yeah um that's 360 acres and and we and it's mostly woodland and we manage you know those populations and um of some of the appalachian medicinal plants um but no you're absolutely right and i'll give you one example and 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 it's also difficult because you know there's only you know i can i like to investigate and find out what's really going on and um you know one example is the the trade in white sage and it's really increased over the last um, five or six years or so. And there were several, several arrests that were made in the Etiwanda Preserve, which is a, a really unique preserve kind of halfway between LA and Palm Springs. And um, I had an idea of who some of the big players were. And I, um, you know, was chose to, I was out in LA for the big Expo West. So I set up a meeting in the Etiwanda Preserve with somebody who I thought was big in the Sage Mafia. And um, the, the person was late there, you know, getting there to meet me. I was alone. It was a man. He came with another person. Um, and so I had this moment like, okay, I'm going to confront you know, this situation and, you know, I'm alone in this big wildlife preserve, like this was maybe not the smartest thing for me to do. And, but there I was, you know, really challenging what I knew was going on and trying to figure it out. And I did find myself in a very precarious position. And, you know, luckily um, a police officer drove up just in the nick of time and, and I was able to get myself out of that situation. But um, so yes, <laughs> I have to be very, yeah, I'm not caught. I need to be more cautious, but I, you know, it's like, how do you get to the root of, of what's going on and understand? And in the case of the white sage, you know, and I do call it a mafia, um, is that 
often it's undocumented people who are in a difficult situation, who have no options that go out there to harvest this white sage because it's, they can get cash and it's the, um, it's the only job they can get at the moment. And they're not there. That's why they're doing it. And so it, um, there's a lot of, um, you know, really gets to the heart of like social justice and inequality. And um, a lot of the people working with plants, um, you know, are doing so because they're in a desperate situation. And I, it, it is hidden and it's not, you know, talked about and there's not a lot that can be done. And then you have this plant that's then being sold as like, burn this sage and clear this energy. Oh God, yeah. yeah, that was you know, harvested by someone who did it because they had no other choice. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's fraught. And um, another, another example of that is the whole saw palmetto industry. Many people don't think about who's harvesting. Yes. It's saw palmettos in, in Florida. It's all migrant, you know, uh, labor force. And they're, they're out in the hot sun. They're not treated well. They're paid very little. And, and this is like, you know, probably a billion dollar industry that's a really challenging habitat and plant to harvest in yeah oh my yeah God. and you go to cbs you buy that thing of yeah. salt palmetto you're not you're not you're not feeling the pain yeah of what happened i mean saw palmetto literally named and like in hot swamps in florida yeah where like as a botanist you know i tip of the hat to anybody who does field work down there because i'm like how do you, I'm like, I got down, I was down in Florida a year ago or so, and you know, just went for a walk by myself to check out the plants. I'm like, what do botanists down here do when you're walking like 20 feet away from an alligator in a ditch? Like, is that just eh, whatever? Cause I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm a Yankee here. I'm like, what am I gonna do? Uh, <laughs> like, I see like willows about 200 feet down the path. I'm like, I know what willows mean. That means alligator habitat. I'm like, I think I think I've seen enough. I, you know, it's just fascinating to me um, mm -hmm. to even just be an observer and just display yeah. my ignorance, but to work in that habitat constantly. No joke, no joke. Yeah, and I, I just think there is such a big disconnect. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, what are some of the things, what are some of the programs that United Plant Savers has in place in order to, you know, address different aspects of yeah. this problem or to further its mission? Yeah, I would say that the, the biggest program we have right now is the Forest Grown Verified Program. And, and that is a program to which we are verifying landowners who are intentionally growing and stewarding these medicinal plants on their property. Um, and it's it's a it's a big vision but it's a way to like spread awareness and it's it's a way to support landowners who are putting in the time to steward these plants they're not just going on to somebody else's property and, and harvesting them um and if they it, you know the other aspect is that you know you can also if you join the forest grown program and you have proof that you have um you know the accessibility and the permission to be on that property you know, so it's it, it's basically adding a little more transparency and then it's supporting those that are actually propagating plants in their practice. So that's that's a really great program that we're, um, you know, feel really good about. And 
I would add that another really great program is the Fair Wild program. Now that's mostly in Europe and it hasn't been brought to the United States, but companies like Traditional Medicinals purchase plant material that has been certified through the Fair Wild program. And that's just a great thing to know about because in reality, you know, the majority of our medicinal plants do come from other countries. And the Fair Wild program is kind of like, uh, you know, the fair trade where they're certifying entire communities that are harvesting certain types of plants and they're making sure that these people are getting paid an equitable amount of money and that they're, um, they're also harvesting these plants in a sustainable fashion. So I think, um, you know, showing your support for, for Fair Wild, educating yourself, like if you're interested in a plant, you know, find out about it, really understand where the plant grows, who's harvesting these plants, um, and how can you support companies that, you know, are, are trying to uplift the communities in this um, process. I went, I did a Fair Wild certification um, I guess a mock certification. I was there witnessing the process, um, on the border of Croatia with like a whole group of, um, it was a whole gypsy family, multi-generational, and they were harvesting the wild ramps that grow in Europe. Uh And there they only harvest the leaf. They don't dig the bulbs. So when we went into the forest, it was like, as it was like, as far as the eye could see, nothing but ramps and they were just harvesting the leaves bagging them and then they're they're dried in these really big dryers and then they're used you know and sold to put in your soup or to you know garnish your food with um and the community had you know it was neat all ages you know um out there collecting the ramps and they had been able to buy a really nice van so that they could then you know, collectively go and harvest together. And often, you know, it's um, often women who run the show, you know, so they elected, you know, they had to elect who would be in charge of kind of like their co-op and a certain percentage of everything they made went, went to that co-op. And, you know, this really intense woman was kind of elected as the chief of this situation. And, and she got to choose to purchase this van. So it was kind of a cool, you know, I do think that um, our, like I said, our relationship with plants and how we use them can be totally positive or it can be totally negative. Yeah, there's a couple of interesting <laughs> pieces right there. You know, you have a quite marginalized group um, mm-hmm. working with the plants, which is uh, traditional among yeah. certain gypsies in Eastern Europe. And you also have maybe if I'm reading you right, a situation where they're harvesting, but they're also tending or not having an adverse effect on the land where they work. So in the one case, you can kind of have this sort of illicit black market smuggling of a wild plant that's really diminishing it and is, you know, also, you know, a, a group within society doing it who don't have a lot of other options or you can set yeah. up these structures and certifications where people can do it right and actually um, either be neutral or beneficial to the wild plant population. And that's a great story to hear. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting to it just look cool. through the mirror of like another continent and be like, oh, this is how they do ramps there. Yeah. Why not here? Why not? Why not? Yeah, 
super it was really because the leaf is potent me. enough you know if, if you want some potent. good flavor and some good breath like you can, you can eat the leaf yeah wine. yeah 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 and and drying it is a is a great way to bring it to market and and have it be used over a long period yeah. of time um yeah and you know it the, the interesting thing in that case of croatia was that um it was in relation, like the area that they were harvesting was on, was on government land. It was like their national forest. So, um, you know, it was kind of like a, a case of the commons. They, yeah. they had permission within the national forest to do what they were doing. Um, so it was really fascinating. And I, and I will say another incredible model is Bulgaria. Bulga Bulgaria is a country that has a federal legislation managing of uh, medicinal plants that are being harvested. And um, they have a really great permit process where, you know, the company puts forth a request for how much they're going to use of that certain plant material. Yeah. And then, th and then they then give that permit out to harvest that amount to, you know, groups of different people in different regions on um, their national forests. Um, I got to go and, and kind of witness the juniper um, berry harvest in Bulgaria and uh, a lot of uh, visual information about good ways to harvest and, and things to be aware of when you're harvesting. And so, it, you know, just to see that in practice, it was like, why, why, now why couldn't we do that here? Why could, we have no federal legislation protecting medicinal plants, yet it's a huge underground economy and a big part of our economy. Yeah. And I, I do think because it is unregulated and, and secretive that there's a lot of practices that are really um, detrimental. And we don't have the national forest. That's where our biggest populations of medicinal plants are on federal lands. And we cannot get the federal government to, you know, pay any attention to uh, managing for medicinal plants. In some ways, it wouldn't be that different from the way that we uh, do game management. Right. No, right. It's, yeah. It's, it, but it's, it's as if it, plants just don't matter enough to even. It's just like they don't matter. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, a big lofty goal would be, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of, my mentality is I'm not, I'm, I'm sort of, you know, an anti-government person at heart, you know, I'm not into big government, but I don't see any other way if, you know, the national, other than some kind of federal legislation, because the U.S. government is in control of our national right. forests. And that's really where the bulk of these plants are. You really need big um, uh, areas to support these plant populations. And I mean, I know, I saw that you had interviewed Kelly Kitchard and um, yeah. I don't know if the whole OSHA thing came up, but him and I have been working on an OSHA project for, for seven years in Colorado in the National Forest. And did, did that come up? Do you want all? to tell me a little bit or about maybe? the OSHA project? Kelly and I talked about a bunch of stuff, but we didn't get real deep. I bet. OSHA, so yeah. I'm happy to hear more about OSHA. Well, what's really fascinating is, you know, you have this um, very sacred, um, you know, uh, in, um, plant to indigenous communities that grows in really high elevations. And what made me think of it was, you know, almost all these high elevation lands are owned by the national forest. Um, and uh, so we, 
um, we had we started a um, a monitoring project within the National Forest. In the first year, we set up these um, transects, and and in one transect transect we harvested 100% of the OSHA, and then in the next transect we harvested 70%, and then 30%, and then you know um, no harvest, and. After we did that first, and those those uh, transects were set up at three different locations. Um, so after we did that first year, then we would go back every year and count the plants and see how quickly OSHA returned, just to give the National Forest some idea of what a sustainable harvest might look like. Um, and what we've discovered is, you know, absolutely um, OSHA endures harvesting and it actually regenerates very quickly. Um, what's fascinating is that OSHA loves disturbance and what we're seeing in Colorado is a lot of disturbance in these high elevation habitats because it, we're extreme tree loss, extreme tree loss. And it's almost like OSHA feeds off that death. So the OSHA populations are actually um, increasing uh, rampantly, which is kind of cool. You, you know, yeah. often what I, often I, all I do is study plants that are like, Oh gosh, it's, you know, so beaten down. Um, but, but OSHA is just thriving due to climate change and environmental change, which is fascinating. Um, the biggest threat is how the forest service manages that land because they are allowing uh, so much cattle to range. Yeah. And that is what is like, just, you know, just like the cattle, just they destroy that, that high elevation habitat, you know? Well, one, they, they, you know, they're grazing on it to an extent, but then it's their hooves, right? It's the hoof damage that just annihilates um, in the, the the cows have no business being up there, but because of climate change, they have to go higher and higher up the mountain to be able to find any food to forage on. Um, and they're in areas that they shouldn't even be in. Uh, so that's, you know, kind of a, I don't want, I don't like the term good old boys, but I'll use it. You know what I mean? It's, it's just like, we're just going to do it the way we did it. Cause that's the way we do it. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah kind of kind of behavior um but it, you know it gets going back to the whole parasitic plants the highest concentration of parasitic medicinal plants are in higher elevation habitats um so this is where you find the particularities yeah. you know all of these really fascinating plants which gets at you know like the whole survival thing right of like you know adapting to um to this environment but for me it's um, I, I just, I, I love OSHA so much. I mean, it just has this smell that, um, is just unlike any other plant on the planet. And it, it's, it really, for me, it's like the plant of breath. I mean, it just, it, you know, you smell it and you're, you're just able, you just breathe differently the moment you smell it. Um, so it's no wonder that it's just such an incredibly sacred um, plant and and really probably one of our most potent antiviral that's the thing right like when we get into this whole covid thing yeah. like we want to talk about viruses 
you know, and we go, oh yeah, the vaccine or whatever, our best ally are these antiviral plants and nature makes them and we can't replicate it. So we don't understand it, but they work. And, you know, this is really where, you know, um, uh, medicinal plants should be like beaming. You know what yeah. I mean? So yeah. you're totally segueing to my next question. I'm going to tuck it in anyway, even though you're already 90% there. But, <laughs> uh, we were in Arizona when the coronavirus thing sort of started hitting like consciousness. You know, we were traveling around and pretty much in a news blackout, but it managed to filter in. And we're like, oh man, what are we going to do? So um, I we went up to Flagstaff and I kind of looked for, you know, like what is the most um, responsible seeming herbal, you know, shop around. And I picked up mm -hmm. Osha and Lomatium and Echinacea angustifolia because it's like, shit, man, we're like in the middle of nowhere on the road, like 2000 miles from home. And I don't have like all my tinctures and stuff. I mean, we do travel with a yeah. bunch of funky stuff. Like if we yeah. ever got pulled over, they'd be like, the hell are these little glass bottles of alcohol? <laughs> but, uh, you know, we didn't have everything we needed. And that was my first impulse. And I, I also recognize that um, Lomatium and Osha and, and Echinacea, you know, they all um, have conservation issues associated with them. I guess where I'm going with this is with coronavirus and these uh, antiviral and you know other species that address different aspects of the system the symptom presentation um mm -hmm. are you seeing any any effects yet or you know like uh sorry what i'm trying to ask is how is corona affecting both yeah. wild plant populations and also herbal practice yeah i i think there's there's all kinds of ways i there was a really great um you know article that i can point to, I believe it's on the Fairwild Foundation's website um, uh, that really looks at the supply chain issues and the pressure on certain plant species in trade right now due to the virus. Um, so that's one aspect. The second aspect is that um, the prices for these plants are going up because they're harder to get. Um, and, and then the whole, like, just the shutdown in trade you know, a lot of our, a lot of our medicinal plants like elderberry, you know, is mostly sourced from Europe yeah. and it was very difficult to get plants into the country as it was, as it, as it is and was with any kind of, um, trade, right. That was coming from abroad. So those, so those are, those are aspects. Um, so many companies had to shut down they just, they close their doors for like a month or two. Yeah. Um, if, if you try and order from Mountain Rose Herbs, I mean, they, they, they let you know there's a long, you're not going to get it in three days like you used yeah. to. Um, Herb Farm, you know, shut their company down for three or four weeks because they couldn't keep up with the demand. Um, so yeah, so herbs are, are kind of a shining light in this moment. I, I'll add on the other side um, some of the, the real, like, you know, heroes, um, uh, mugwort, you know, something that grows everywhere can be found anywhere. Totally. The whole, I don't know if you followed the whole story in Madagascar, you know, they started producing, um, an herbal tea with, with a mugwort base that they're distributing for free all throughout the country, um, to protect its citizens from, 
um, COVID, which is like super fascinating. It'd be really interesting to see, but they seem to be doing fine with it. Um, some other really great plants that are so abundant, everybody should be growing thyme. It's, it's now is a time for thyme. <laughs> I mean, these are, you know, your thyme, your oregano, your sage, you know, um, uh, putting it in apple cider vinegar, you know, letting it sit and, you know, having that be your, your, your go-to daily dose, you know, there's some really accessible things that we all could be doing, um, to, uh, protect ourselves and, you know, oregano, thyme, sage. I mean, they're, they're just the classics, right? Um, everybody should have them growing in their windowsill or backyard and eating them. Yeah. <laughs> drinking tea, making apple cider vinegar, whatever it is, you know? Um, so, those, so those are some examples of how I think um, it's affecting our, our medicinal plant trade. For those who know about medicinal plants, um, I think there's a sense of security that other people don't feel. Yeah. Don't you think? I feel like if I got coronavirus, I would at least have some support and some things I could right. try and some hope and yeah. some ability to also like adjust relative to whatever my symptom picture was right. and, you know, work with what I needed at that time. And it yeah. definitely takes the sort of panic level down right. for me yeah. to, to have those, you know, plant allies. Right. And, yeah. and you know, as somebody who has gotten a lot of like respiratory infections in the past, yeah, I, uh, I had a lot of time to kind of see which ones work for me and which ones don't. Right. So yeah. I don't know. I'm yeah, not looking probably. forward to fall though, because I, every fall I get a nasty yeah. respiratory thing and I don't actually don't really know why, but you know, I just work outdoors all summer and then the seasons start changing and just yeah. crash. So we'll yeah. see if you don't hear a podcast yeah. around November, you guys. Know, <laughs> uh -oh. And also, you know, there's, at least one person or two people in the background who are kind of laughing because I have this really complicated relationship with mugwort because it's heinously invasive in, you know, <laughs> like some really fantastic native plant communities that just all turn to mugwort. And so I'm always like, get rid of that mugwort. But I also, there's a little part of me is like, one day, Jared, you're going to owe your life to mugwort and who's going to be the chump then? But, you know, it's just like yeah. life is complicated. I'm not going to yeah. try to say like there's only one answer relative to this. Right. But, um, yeah. yeah, absolutely. That's from the people absolutely. who are chuckling in the background as you're talking about yeah. mugwort being so yeah. healthy. Oh, I know. Oh, I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you are. I can't get it out of my garden. Oh my it's taking over. Yeah. yeah. Um, you also have an apothecary. Yes. You have a shop? Yes. Uh, mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit more about that. You know, back before this happened, I was like, oh, I'll drive down and check out Susan's place and then we'll go to, you know, Roanoke and work our way down, you know, but uh, such is not the case. So what, what are you up to down there? Um, I, yeah, the apothecary is, is there, but it's, it's closed. Um, and, you know, maybe I'll reopen it it's really off the beaten path. It's in a really cool old building that was a store probably before the civil war. And, um, so it's, it's like walking back in time going into the apothecary and, um, but you know, you know, wearing a mask and, um, trying to meet all the requirements and, and then not getting the kind of foot traffic. And it just, it, it just doesn't make a lot of sense to be open at this time. Um, you know, that being said, I had all these herbs, you know, 
in the apothecary when everything got shut down and um, I do grow hemp on my farm and I do have a product line of um, hemp, uh, both in capsules and in tincture. And so then I had all these herbs and I'm like, what do I do with them? And I did, um, I did send a lot to like nurses in um, New York and, you know, different people that I knew that I could like support them. You know, I was, I was, you know, putting care packages together, but then I, I kind of was like, Hmm. Um, I decided to come up with five different formulas and, um, make some herbal capsules with them. So I'm hoping to release those in the next couple of weeks or so. And they're actually, they're spigerically um, extracted. And Tell me what that means. The spigeric? Yeah. Yeah. It, well, I mean, it's, um, you know, it's, it's an, an old kind of, has a long alchemical history. And um, I'm working with a company out in Colorado called Evolved Alchemy. And... They mostly do standard extractions, but they but they do do small batches of spigeric, um, and so that process is kind of like a typical tincture, right? Where you go ahead and do that first extraction, and then um, with some of the plant material, you burn it down into like an ash, so you really get get it down to like the um, the minerals of the plants and then you do a second extraction of the plant material and the minerals so it's when you talk about you know this idea of what full spectrum is you know spigeric really gets at that concept of full spectrum because you're not only getting you know the um the extraction through the alcohol process you're actually getting the extraction through um, the minerals as well in the salts of the plant and then reinfusing that in, into the tincture. So it, it really is kind of like that full spectrum of the, I don't know, the plant spirit really. And, you know, a lot of, um, a lot of like, you know, Rudolf Steiner, um, you know, his, his work really built on, um, that alchemical tradition of spigeric. So it's a, it's a, it's a labor of love. Um, and it, you know, takes a lot more time, costs a lot more to do, but, um, I'm really excited. I don't think there's anything out there like this. Maybe there is, but there's not much of it. So it'll be, um, spigeric, um, hemp, um, infused with a spigeric herb formulation, um, in a a grapefruit base that will that's put into a capsule. So I, I don't know. I'm getting creative and experimenting. Cool. Where will people find that if they're interested? Um, so the, yeah, I, I'll be selling it online through the Paris Apothecary website. Okay. So parisapothecaryva.com. Cool. Um, and um, yeah, so it'll, it'll be interesting. It'll be a little experiment. I'll, I'm, I'm, you know, it's a small batch of, of each of the five formulas. And I don't know, my, my, my take on the cannabinoids and you know the the cannabis is that it's kind of like a potentizer you know because you're you're able to connect with these um receptors so i i feel like you need very if you if you're you know really using a a full spectrum cannabinoid product um you, you don't need much of it 
for your for your body to really connect with it and and um, have it work for you. So it's you know it's not necessarily homeopathic per se, but I I do feel like the 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 cannabinoids. Um, I don't know. That's my intuition. You know. That's so. I guess this. There's a yeah. And go ahead. Well, there's a sort of small class of herbs, and I actually can't remember what the term that's usually used for them, but like cayenne or lobelia, where, you know, they're kind of like helping whatever else you're doing sort of diffuse to where it needs yeah. to go in the body. I always kind of found that, I don't know, catalysts or, you know, found that yeah. concept to be really fascinating. It's interesting mm -hmm. to hear that about the cannabinoids also. It makes sense. Yeah. And it, yeah. Yeah. And another really big one is the jacenicides in ginseng. And in, uh, you know, it's not my area of expertise, but, you know, I do know that within, you know, Chinese medicine, ginseng is added to these formulas in small doses because it's considered, you know, um, to potentize the, the herbal formula. So I, I think these, you know, the, our understanding of just, just and, um, and, 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 and how they work with the human body. And then also, well, it's, you know, I guess it's in that class of, you know, ginseng's really in that class of adaptogens, right? We really don't understand how they um, do their thing, you know, other than they, they just, they do whatever they need to do. If you're really excited, they calm you down. If you're calm, they, they bring you up. So, um, yeah, I think those, yeah, it, it's an interesting class of plants. And I think, um, certainly cannabis is just uh it's completely fascinating so i want to ask you about united plant savers golden seal sanctuary um mm -hmm. i almost made it there last year we were actually on a, a botanical society field trip to southeastern ohio and we saw all these awesome like xeric limestone glades which were so mm -hmm. cool because they're like little yeah. islands of prairie making themselves yeah. out east and they sort of look like yeah. our meadows here and they sort of look like prairies yeah. of the Midwest and they're on really cool geology and, and really stark mm -hmm. and stunning. And we would have made it over to the Golden Seal Sanctuary, but, you know, somebody in the family got sick and we just kind of hustled it home afterwards instead. Um, and one of the things that struck me about that area and uh, forgive me if this is just out of ignorance, but it seemed really poor, like this was. Um, you know, kind of coal mining country or, you know, areas yeah. that the economy had just left behind. And this was like real rural poverty out in that yeah. area. And so I'm curious about the Golden Seal Sanctuary. And I'm also curious about it sort of like in the context of a rural economy. Like, do you think that plant stewardship and that working with plant resources and working with herbs holds promise for the future of a rural economy? And if so, what does it look like? So that is, sorry, two questions bundled into one, but yeah. I have a habit of doing that. Take whichever prong, <laughs> take whichever prong no, you want. It's, it's a really, it's a really good, it, it's a really good question. It's super insightful. And I do think that the sanctuary is the heart of a community and that community is thriving because of it in one of the most poorest left behind regions of the country. And um, unless you go there, I don't think you can really grasp it. And it's, um, it is, it is true. And, uh, that being said, you know, the Golden Seal Sanctuary is a really unique piece of land because 
it's got this, you know, it's partly forested with really intact forest that um, has these populations of ginseng, gongsil, and cohosh, and these trillium and all those kind of plants that love to live together. And then the other half of the land was strip mined in the 60s. And that whole region was, I mean, the coal, you know, was just on the surface, right? And they just had to like go in and, um, you know, put it on big trucks and, and, and haul it out. And then what it left behind um, was, you know, total devastation. Um, it, uh, um, you know, impacted the water quality. And, um, and then those places became areas where the, like trash was left because it was so, you know, destroyed in the process of the strip mining. And um, so a lot of really cool restoration work has happened on that land. Um, so once the, um, uh, the land, all the trash was removed and then lime was put down, ponds were created, prairie plants were planted. Um, so there's, you know, a lot of, um, you know, we've got one trail that's the medicine trail that takes you through that forest. And then we have the other um, trail, which is a reclaim trail, which takes you along the reclaim and, and talks about all the environmental restoration work that's been done on the property. Um, so in, in that, re but, you know, we, um, the, the sanctuary has a, has a long story and it was, it was uh, really well done in a movie called The Sanct Sanctity of Sanctuary, which tells the story of Paul Strauss and how he came to that region and settled there and started to farm and, and then, you know, started making the golden seal salve that's um, made from his company, Equinox Botanicals. And um, he, he had a very close relationship with, um, you know, Bigley that owned that land and Bigley got into a lot of uh, financial um, trouble and uh, Paul helped raise the money to purchase the land so it wouldn't be um, logged. But the family still has their home and they still have accessibility to the land. And they're also the family that, you know, chose to strip mine that property. Um, so it's, it's, it is really complicated, but, you know, we have a really good relationship with that family and we try really to build bridges with people within the community. And if you, you know, as the crow flies, we're only about 10 miles from the Ohio river and, you know, several huge, um, you know, coal power plants. And, um, so it's, it's intense. It's intense, but I do think the sanctuary um, now having been there for 20 some years, you know, one brings people to the region who are, who, who want to, who are interested. And a lot of the people who've had a relationship with that land, you know, have, have settled in the area and a lot of different herbal companies, you know, there's um, Herbal Sage, which is a tea company. You know, there's um, the Appalachian Herb School. I mean, there's just a whole uh, host of small little herbal entities, you know, growing um, medicinal plants, growing ginseng, growing golden seal. It's really, I think, a, a, a super unique case study of um, how plants can really grow a vibrant green economy. Um, 
So it's, it's pretty, it's pretty neat to see. And you kind of got to stick around to kind of meet people in the community and, and kind of see these relationships. And I will say that this was fertile ground because a lot of these old school farmers, you know, were growing cannabis illegally. Interesting. And that's how they survived, you know? So it, it, you know, it's hard to talk about those things. And now we're at this place where like, I mean, Ohio has not very good hemp rules and it, I don't really agree with it, but you know, just the fact that you, you can legally grow it now. Um, so, you know, that's a whole nother discussion. Like why did, why, why are we stripping the rural economy from um, being able to, to grow a medicinal plant that is profitable and, and, and can uplift the communities? I mean, that's, you know, in Ohio, you have, you, you, you know, you can only grow it like indoors or it has to be like fenced. I mean, it's stupid, you know, like I mean, cannabis needs, cannabis needs hands to be, of larger. Yeah. Players. Right. Yeah. I, I feel very fortunate that Virginia has got some great cannabis laws. I mean, it's very affordable to apply to get your um, certificate and you can grow it outdoors. <laughs> With the sun and the soil and, you know, the rain. Um, yeah. It's a shocking so, way for a plant to grow. I don't know why. I know. I don't know why I really want to do that. <laughs> People should know where their cannabis comes from because um, as with anything, you really want to build a relationship with the grower and really have transparency because, you know, this cannabis being grown in greenhouses with all these heavy um, inputs and, and, and being extracted with, you know, really toxic chemicals. I mean, it's, um, you know, as consumers, you know, we really have to do the work, um, because there's just a lot of snake oil out there and people in it to make a buck who don't care about your health or care about the plants. And, you know, that's just part of a free economy. We, we have to, we have to engage, you know, we can't just go to the store and buy stuff and not think there's going to be consequences. That seems like a good place to let you go. But okay. before I completely let you go, <laughs> um, if people are uh -huh. interested in United Plant Savers, where would you send them? Mm -hmm. And if they're interested in you, um, you know, where should I send people? Also, and of course, I'm happy to put links up on the, you know, show. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, uh, yeah, United Plant Savers has a, as a, you know, as a, a great Instagram account, and that's a great way cool. to stay up to date. We also have a Facebook page, and certainly our website. I mean, we survive off membership. It is not easy to get money to make the organization tick, and so it's thirty five dollars to become a member. If you become a member, you get a journal in the mail and you, and you get all kinds of cool discounts and it's, you know, it comes back tenfold. So become a member if you can. If not, everything we do is on our website for free. It's accessible to anybody. If you want to be a member and you can't afford to be, we'll let you be a member. You know I mean? we, we want you to be a member. Um, and then, um, and then, you know, my uh, apothecary, um, Paris Apothecary VA is also on Instagram and, um, yeah, I'm really accessible. Anybody can, um, you know, email me or, um, reach out and, and probably one of the coolest things that we have, 
is our botanical sanctuary network. Anybody can join. You can go on our website and look at the interactive map with all our botanical sanctuaries. So um, if you're like, where do I get started? I care about this. What, you know, look up what botanical sanctuaries are near to you and, and connect with those people. And um, so, yeah, there's always, you know, have a plant in your house that you, that you pot it up and take care of it every day. Awesome. Much appreciate <laughs> the work that you're doing and also your generosity in spending time with me today. So thanks so much, Susan. I'll let you know when this is up. And, okay. Uh, yeah. Maybe next time in person. We'll see. Yeah. We'll see. Yeah. Come to, oh, definitely come to Ohio. I mean, it's, we have a beautiful prairie and an incredible heart pond and beautiful woods and cool reclaim. And it's, and we have a new center that nobody can go into right now, but one day we hope you will. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you will too. All right. Take care. Thanks. Bye-bye.